Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Unauthorized network access was the most common cause of third-party cyber attacks in 2022. This includes ransomware and phishing attacks that created internal network compromises that were responsible for 40% of third-party cybersecurity breaches. These statistics show that we are not moving closer to a more secure internet. Protection from cybersecurity scams need more security by design and an ability to give more tools to consumers for better privacy and security control. I have two guests on today's show. Thomas Vartanian is the author of The Unbreakable Internet, a recently published book where he notes that there are more than a 100 improvements he would recommend in two dozen categories that would make the internet more secure. Tom served as general counsel of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board during the saving and loans crisis and as special assistant to the chief counsel of the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. He is also the author of 200 Years of American Financial Panic, which is rising on the bestseller list. Tom currently leads the Financial Technology and Cybersecurity Center. My other guest is Paul Kupiak. He is a fellow colleague at the American Enterprise Institute who focuses on systemic risk and the management and regulation of banks and financial markets. Before joining AEI, Paul worked at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the International Monetary Fund, Freddie Mac, J.P. Morgan, and for the Board of Governors for the Federal Reserve System. While I'm a techno-optimist compared to these two gentlemen's concerns about the dangers of how data flows on the Internet, they point out several valid concerns about the dysfunction of the bureaucracies that oversee the key parts of our banking industry security tools. I hope you enjoy this conversation about the importance of securing our critical infrastructure networks, better collaboration for federal network operations, and protecting individual information and promoting more secure internet overall. Tom, thank you for writing this amazing book. I really enjoyed it. Um, a parts of it, I felt like I was living some of my early 2000 life again. But the, a couple key points that I really am looking forward to covering with you today is you mentioned in the book the focus on weakness uh, for online networks and critical infrastructure and the dysfunction of the bureaucracies that oversee them. Uh, the GAO came out with a study recently with some just horrifying numbers. It said since 2010, they have made 3,700 recommendations to agencies aimed at remedying cybersecurity shortcomings at, uh, as of November 2021. 11 of the recommendations they made just specifically to DHS, where CISA sits, um, they have not yet implemented any of them. And in the 2018 report, it, it just continues to go through, you know, the, the key things they asked for, protecting critical infrastructure, protecting privacy and sensitive data. And yet our own government is not focusing on these things. So I thought we'd start with the government and that we can get broader into society. But can, can you kind of walk us through what you think is going on there and what would be helpful? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Shane. And I, I really appreciate being on the podcast with you and uh, Paul. Uh, anything I can do with Paul is uh, always <laughs> always an honor to me. Uh, so let me uh, let me sort of give you my perspective, and it's sort of the perspective of a war correspondent because I was in there doing a lot of this stuff as the government was acting. Uh, I go back to the early '90s with Mondex and Digicash and all of those things, uh, and the, you know the the launch of digital signatures on a global basis and the whole thing. And I spent four years as chairman of the Cyberspace Law Committee at the American Bar Association. I got to travel around the world seeing what was going on. And 
So when I did the research for this book, I wanted to go back to that sort of genesis point and decide for myself again what the government has and has done, not done. And to make a long story short, which is laid out in the book, I went through 25 years of government reports, presidential executive orders, GAO reports, congressional reports, reports by regulators. And the most interesting one, I thought, was the annual report from the FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which was such an obvious cut-and-paste job year after year. It was shocking to me that, that this area of cybersecurity was becoming such an acute and serious area, and some bureaucrats in the Treasury were just cutting and pasting these reports over and over again. And at the end of these annual reports... They all ended with, well, somebody better do something. It was sort of the bottom line. And, and so those were enormously frustrating. I went back and I looked at all of the presidential executive orders from President Clinton to President Biden. And the interesting thing is that President Clinton and his people nailed the problem. They identified the problem. They identified what we had to do. They identified critical infrastructures. And they said, here's what we have to do. And since that executive order in 1996, it has been repeated 20 times in 20 different executive orders by five different presidents and basically repeated and cut and pasted. So the answer to your question is, what have we done? We have done relatively nothing except ring the warning bell about what we should be doing. And that is the problem. Now, on the other hand, you have to ask yourself the question, what can the government do because we all know that 95% of the internet is in the hands of private companies, users, and individuals. And so there's this funny juxtaposition between looking to the government to make something safe that it really can't make any safe by itself. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. And Paul, thanks for joining us on this podcast. I, I really enjoyed the event where uh, you had Tom in to talk about the book. So hence we're here today. But one of the uh, things that seemed to be really shocking to you is how the what we'll call the, the public internet runs it with such a loose element when it comes to identity, data protection, all the things that you think would be kind of already in place, which are not and the consumers are happily corresponding and doing things, financial issues around this, you you seemed horrified. And I kind of loved watching your reaction because I thought he's not wrong. I mean, you'd think we would have this figured out by now. So uh, what, what did you learn reading Tom's book that or what's the thing that scared you the most? Give us give us some input from the book process. Well, thanks for inviting me, uh, Shane. I think just how from the get go, the whole internet is, uh, is just not secure. I mean, it's it, it it was never designed to be secure. Um, people launch all kinds of apps on it and programs on it. There's no quality control. There's no necessary safety feature. Uh, there can be back doors. Uh, and and basically, in modern times, people are basically forced onto the internet to do their day to day lives. That's there kind of isn't a choice anymore. Mm. Um, so we're put in this position where we're forced to use this, you know, electronic means of doing business and communicating that that has all these flaws in it and and all these traps and um, people people seem uh, just unaware or they just don't seem to care uh, and I think um, yeah and the the whole point about 
will the government save us is, is another one. Yeah. Good luck with that. But, um, yeah, I found it all uh, very, uh, very informative. I'm not I'm by no means an expert on the internet. And, um, you know, I think Tom's right. I mean, the next, you know, major financial crisis could be because of problems with the internet, some malware, some hack, some cyber attack, uh, brings the system down and, and, you know, society is basically built, built now on the internet. And you, you take that down, um, you got real problems. Yeah. Vint Cerf, who was one of the key people to create it has, is practically, he has apologized very kindly. He said, you know, we thought that would come later. We didn't think we needed to build it into the initial infrastructure because we were, you know, not at that point in the, the process. So, uh, since you guys spend so much time in the financial sector, I'm fascinated in that, how the there are certain elements of the the finance world that are on private internet. You know, Tom, you talk about that in the book. They they are on private networks, and they're certainly not going to put themselves at the same risk that they were putting the quote public internet on. What are the lessons we can learn, and is there a way to bifurcate in between those? Or you also recommend maybe we need to create more private internet functions. What what would you say should be our next step to kind of get out of this hole we've gotten ourselves in with the public internet? Yeah, I think that's uh, the $64,000 question, Shane. How do we get out of this mess? Because we don't have any political leaders uh, to speak of, of, you know, that are going to lead us out of this mess. We, we don't have business leaders banging the drum saying we have to fix the Internet because corporations are making more money from an insecure network than they'll have to pay to make it secure. Users would be horrified to, to, to learn that their Internet experience would slow down by two nanoseconds because it was more secure so, you know, there, there's no effort at this point to try to, to try to fix it. And that's what's horrified me in terms of my experience over the last 30 years and the research I've done. But if you look at the financial services business, I've concluded based on what I know and based on my experience in financial services, helping major financial companies get online and, and do what they have to do on the internet. That financial services companies are head and shoulders above most of the other critical infrastructures. Uh, and that's the problem, right? You've got transportation, you've got FAA, you've got water, uh, you've got the power grids that are not as well coordinated, not as well protected as a financial services system. But that doesn't mean the financial services system is by any means, um, impervious to being taken down. And, Look, you know, I, I've talked to a number of people who said, sure, it could happen. Um, it, it doesn't happen for a number of reasons. And those reasons are sort of laid out in the book, but it could happen at any particular time. And what concerns me at this moment is that we've reached the crossroads where technology is getting cheaper and cheaper and able to be gotten into the hands of more and more people. When it's in the hands of nation states, there's sort of a mutually assured destruction agreement between all the nation states, right? China's not going to bring down the United States. The United States won't bring down China, vice versa, because you're afraid that whatever you meet out, you'll get back a hundredfold. Uh, but what happens when this technology ends up in the hands of terrorists and criminal cartels and fanatics? I mean, that's, that's the scary part of what's going on here. And I think the only way we get traction, unfortunately, the only way we're going to get traction is for the public to realize they have more to lose from the insecurity than they do to have to gain from the way the Internet is now. And, and perhaps the only way that happens is a major event, a financial Armageddon, 
Uh, and at that point, you have to wonder whether or not it's actually too late to fix it. So looking at a, a parallel industry, the uh, Colonial Pipeline, and I talked to a lot of people around that, was a real wake-up call. And they created – also, not only were they better about being more efficient in the – you mentioned the um, – I think it was the – was that the – the one that you mentioned was the precursor to what was eventually the FS ISAC, the information mm-hmm. sharing. Okay. So they, they have not only suggested that, but the government really latched finally on to fully saying we really need to get these ISACs going. And now there's actually a restaurant and hospitality ISAC that came up during COVID, which is smart, right? Right. Uh, but the, the FS ISAC has always held out as the gold standard as far as like, you know, being able to do that inter, uh, industry talk that was hard because you needed that legal liability shield. And so that was probably one of the better mechanisms. And I get, I, you're the lawyer, so I want to make sure I'm getting that right. I've always yeah. heard that, but okay. Yeah. So um, are we, are we being better about sharing the, for the case of sharing the information cross industry? Because now everybody is connected. I mean, if I'm going yeah. to go into an, an environment where I'm, you know, I'm paying my Pepco bill online, so I'm using my banking entity to talk to my Pepco. I mean, all those are those loose threads that you talk about in the book that once they're connected, they're they're connected. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, I think the bottom line is here, everything online and everything that's connected is vulnerable and everything's online and connected. So everything's vulnerable at this point. You go back, FSISAC's been around, I think, almost 20 years. Shelter Harbor's been around maybe 10 years. And and those are pretty sophisticated organizations sharing information, data back and forth between financial institutions and the government uh, to try to make sure that at least everybody's on top of what's happening. It's unclear whether or not in the case of a major assault on the financial services infrastructure, whether they will actually be successful in keeping it uh, above water. Because it, it's never had to. Uh, but here's the problem I see in the sharing, and I talk about this in the book. Fundamentally, sharing is a problem because you're asking competitors to share information upon which they will compete. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that if we continue to have attacks on financial institutions, they will be competing. They will be marketing themselves as the most secure institutions in the marketplace. So that gives them little incentive to share information with other entities that, that they're also doing business against. Second of all, sharing of information. The banking business is, is the most highly regulated business in this country, perhaps after nuclear power. Uh, everything they do, every move they make is followed, tracked, and evaluated by regulators. That is not an environment. It's not an environment where people are anxious to share information with the government. Why? Because there are examples of them sharing information and having it used against them, right? The politics change, the environment change, and all of a sudden somebody digs out the information and says, well, I'm bringing an action against you for this. So that's the second problem. There's there's liability there. Uh, and lastly, I think, you know, the question is, what's the government sharing and how's the government playing the role here. And I, and I suspect from what I know that the government's in listening mode. It's accepting a, a lot of information. It's not giving out a lot of information. And, and, and that's, again, a huge problem. So you go back to the Sony hack uh, that was allegedly done by North Korea over... It's one of my favorites. Yeah, <laughs> over, you know, over events uh, that really focused on a crummy movie. But <laughs> uh, Sony was helpless, right? They weren't allowed under federal law to hack back. 
So they call the FBI, they call the Cyber Command, they call whoever they call. You know, if you know who to call, you call Ghostbusters, I guess. And and you you wait and you say, well, what are you going to do? And the government says to you, it's in good hands. We'll take care of it. it it's a lot like the scene, the last scene in Indiana Jones, the uh, uh, in, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't know if you remember that scene, but Indiana asked the government officials where the Ark has been taken. And they said, it's with top people. And he says, what top people? And they say, top people. So it's a little like that scene. Can, oh, I'm just going to, just like Paul Dolby, the, the Sony hack is my favorite because President Barack Obama said, I wish the CEO of Sony, a Japanese company, would have called me. And you're like, there's so many interesting facets to, <laughs> you know, like where that, you know, a, a bad movie comes out, it upsets a North Korean guy, the Japanese get involved, and the president of the United States is like, I wish they'd just called. And he wasn't wrong, but it, right. it's kind of a weird way of managing it. Paul, go ahead and step in here. Yeah, so, um, Tom, in financial services uh, in general now, um, we kind of have an air gap between uh, people transacting with banks and institutions and then the institutions transacting among themselves and with the Fed. You can't, you can't directly interface uh, and, and essentially get a straight-through uh, transaction to a, a reserve account. And, and many in industry, in the crypto industry especially, argue that, that that's bothersome because they can't program up all their payments. They have to give a file to a bank, and then the file has to process it. There's that air gap. Now, in some sense, that's one of the safety measures you recommend right there. It keeps the, the financial institutions cordoned off. But what happens if the Fed actually goes to a retail uh, central bank digital currency where all of us have, have essentially Fed accounts and access to move money in the system? You know, the Treasury's accounts in the Fed system. All the banks have their reserve accounts in the system. Um, with <laughs> After reading your book, that sounds incredibly uh, unwise <laughs> from a, a cybersecurity standpoint. Yeah, Paul. So you raise an interesting question. All of the hoopla and, uh, I guess, irrational exuberance over CD, CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. So I'll tell you a story, and I won't use names, but the guys at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston I know who were working on that project with MIT, and they called me up and they said, can we talk with you about what your views were or would be about central bank digital currency. And 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 I, and I, I mentioned a number of things and a number of issues, and they said, well, what is the most important thing in your mind? I said, the most important thing in my mind is not that you do it because you can. You do it because you can guarantee it's safe. If the Federal Reserve issues CBDC, it will be the most attractive, hacked, product on the face of the planet. Just think about what you can do if you can get in to that system and steal digital coins from the Federal Reserve or bring the system down. And so what I what I argued to them is that they should not do it unless they can guarantee security. And oh, by the way, you can't guarantee security. Now, I had dinner a little bit after that with Randy Quarles, who I've known for a long time, uh, and he was vice chair of of the Fed for bank supervision. And he made a speech shortly after that, I think in July of 2020, basically saying the same thing, that this is a, this is a solution looking for a question. And we ought to be damn sure 
that this can be secure and we know what we're getting out of it. And put aside all the business questions about what's the role of the banks in that kind of an economy. And can consumers go directly to the Fed? I mean, enormous changing and shifting of capital liquidity and all kinds of things in the country could flow from that. But put those aside for the second. If they can't guarantee the security of that currency, and I don't think they can, they can't guarantee the security of that currency, you shouldn't do it. Let let China jump in with its digital yuan. Great. Let their system collapse because that's what's going to happen at some point as the hackers start turning on this stuff. So I don't think it's going to happen in the short term. I have my doubts that it'll happen in the long term simply because of the security issues that relate to issuing CBDC on an open open architecture of the internet. So let's go from the macro to the micro and talk about identity management because one of the things you talk about in the book is authentication and the you know years you spent working on that and then the anonymous element which has allowed the dark web which is where I think you know we know that they've figured it out but they've also figured a great you know how to keep slightly out of harm's way uh, the FBI has been doing a much better job of, of nabbing those guys lately but and their colleagues uh, but the identity management and the advent of digital wallets I, I I'm a huge Apple wallet user I I think they've done a very good job of um, figuring out some of the safety mechanisms I know there's been concerns about it uh, lately but they do for using it for airline tickets for I mean so again the other industries that have come on board and they've done a, a, a nice job of making sure that they manage it from both sides of the equation. They don't demand um, anything beyond security. They're willing to collaborate with, you know, the, especially like I was talking to somebody the other day about uh, how the metro in the U.S., the U.S. metro system is Washington is a different system than they use in London is a different system they use in Paris. And they, they don't try to force function something onto somebody who doesn't want that process and it has to stay within their local regulatory boundaries. So how how are we doing on authentication? Are we getting better? Because this will hopefully heal, eventually heal that one open portal where we have too much openness on the internet. Yeah. So uh, we're getting better, but that's a relative term. Uh, as I think I've now concluded, and I've talked to a number of people and experts, people who I consider much more expert in, in this area than I and I think we've gotten better, but the, the relativity is we have come from absolutely a miserable start to something that begins to look like it has some potential. So, you know, we, we've now we've now started to add multi-factor authentication. One fact, you know, single-factor authentication is useless in terms of authentication. And let's start with the basics. We are never authenticating a person. We're always authenticating a machine or an IP address, right? There's, there's very few processes around that are focusing on identifying a person who's using that machine or that phone or whatever the case may be. So you go to multi-factor authentication, you get a text, you answer the text. That helps in, in moderate ways. But an expert in this area told me that Three layers of multi-factor authentication gets you to about 60% security. It's a gate, right? gating mechanism, right? It, you you right. slowly get some of the stupid and the silly people out of the way, but you the, the, the determined still get through, right? Correct. Absolutely right. And, and that, you know, unless we fix this authentication problem, and I've talked to people um, who are working on the, uh, the, the operating stack 
for uh, the internet and trying to build several more layers of authentication and security to make it work a lot differently. But until we fix the problem of authentication, until we get governance on the internet, which would be appalling to most people of the internet age, right? And until we get enforcement of those rules that we create with some sort of cyber police, it is an absolute joke to think that we will have any real level of security. So what have we done here? In the 25 years that we've been fumbling around with all this, we have built the perfect playground for criminals, 'er ne'er-do-wells, and all kinds of crazy people. That's what we've done. And it seems to me, unless we stop right now and say, wait a minute, we've got to change direction, and it's possible to change direction. It's not horribly difficult to change direction. It's just inconvenient. But unless we do that, we are on a path that, as I suggest in the book, is going to lead to some sort of financial digital harbor at some point. I don't have any doubt about it. And when you mention all those different payment systems and things, and I worked for just about every credit card, ACH payment system, and major bank over my 40 years. I don't use any of that stuff. <laughs> I just will not use any of it. I try to keep my my internet profile as narrow as I possibly can. But as Paul suggests, you can't you can't live in this world without having an internet profile, without being online. So I try to do it in, in as uh, microscopic way as I possibly can, knowing all I'm doing is probably reducing the chances uh, numerically of somebody coming along and doing something, you know, offensive to me. But uh, I don't use any of that stuff only because I think it increases my chances of having my data or my information either stolen or on the dark web. Well, I'm, I'm the antithesis of you. I use it all. Love it. Um, but understand the difference. But so is there an option? I know you're a, a, a big fan of zero trust, as am I. And I know that's a tough one because people don't, you know, it goes back to the anonymity part of the Internet, which causes it free, the flourish, flourishing of freedom and of voice. But at the same time, it causes a lot of trouble. Trouble. Can we um, can we work with is there anything we can do within the government guys? So I'm thinking of things that levers we have at hand that are maybe not industry driven because industry is so, you know, financially driven as to what is in their profit motive. But the government seems like a place that we could start. And you mentioned on page 184 that you have a 100 different fixes for more than two dozen categories to make the internet more secure. Are some of these some things that we could be working with within the government to start showing some examples? Yeah, I mentioned that. I mentioned that. That's a good point, Shane. I mentioned those 100 fixes, and I, I also summarize at the end that I don't think we're going to do them. <laughs> But, uh, and that's it why it starts I, to know where they are, right? You know, it's, right, it's a good step, right. right? But that, that's why I sort of default to the creation of secure private networks for, uh, for critical infrastructures. Because as I said, what, what, when I started in banking in 1976 as at the controller of the currencies office, nobody, there was no internet and there was no open architecture networks. Everything was a proprietary network. And, and those are possible. They're usable. And, I think that that is ultimately the solution because they're going to act as sidecars or supplement to the internet we have because we're not going to get rid of the internet we have. But the government, the government can make a start at this. Unfortunately, as I've indicated, the 25 year track record for the government is pretty bad because each of these executive orders, and I'll talk about the Biden executive order in 2021, which actually does talk about zero trust architecture. Uh, but each of those executive orders, what does it do? 
it says, we want these 24 agencies to take responsibility for this. Well, you know and I know in the government, if, if 24 agencies are responsible for something, nobody's responsible for anything. Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. Now, the Biden executive order went a few steps further than all of these other executive orders. Uh, and one of the ways they went a little further is they said, by 2024, we want zero trust architecture software throughout the federal government. I think the chances of that happening uh, are not 100%. Uh, the chances that any of these things have ever happened in an executive order have been poor. But that's a great goal because then it also suggests that zero trust architecture should then be a requirement of all government contractors. And that becomes to be a very broad swath of America's corporations. So you start requiring in 2024 not only government agencies to be uh, have zero trust architecture, but you then require all the government contractors who probably have to require all their subcontracts. So you're now, you're now cutting a wide swath through the internet insecurities that we have. I'm just wondering how that happens. And, and the problem is you got it. What is there? 243 government agencies with 243 heads of cybersecurity at each of these agencies deciding how it's going to happen. I mean, it's going to be a veritable nightmare and a, and a spaghetti stew that we just throw up on the wall and see what's, what sticks. And that's part of the problem. We have under-resourced our federal agencies, we have overtaxed them, and we have over-expected uh, what they can do. And I think that's fundamentally uh, a weak link in all of this. Yeah, policy through procurement wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> uh, Paul? Yeah, so I think I just heard you say, Tom, when it comes to government agencies, you have zero trust. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I want to bring it down to a, uh, a common thing that us non-internet uh, jocks would maybe understand. So the country a few years ago made me go get this thing called a real ID where I had to bring a, a birth certificate or a social security card or a power bill and pay money. And they gave me a, they gave me a different kind of driver's license. Elon Musk is doing this thing where he charges you eight bucks a month and you get some kind of check mark so you're uh, verified as a real person somehow. I mean, is there is there a way that, um, and I hate to call it you call it a government agency, but is there any way with bio, you know biometric data or something like that that you could have a government certify that I, there's some there's some way that you authenticate yourself and you're a and this you're, you are a real person. You are yeah. the person you say you are. It is, is, you know, this kind of takes the driver's license and the Elon Musk thing and puts it somehow. Is there a way to supercharge that and make something like that? Yeah, I, I think there are ways to attain a greater level of security because perfection is not possible, right? We, we live in a world, whether it's the analog world or the online world, we're always going to be dealing with crime. We're always going to be, always going to be deal, dealing with security and perfection. But the question is, I think you're raising is how do we get it from 20% to 80%, right? And, and that's a, that's a long way to go. So yes, there are a lot of things that can be done in the forms of authentication, biometrics, uh, nanosciences and all kinds of things like that. The problem will be ultimately that it requires and relies upon the user. And so many users are the weak link, weak link into all these networks. Because they don't want to do what makes the internet secure. They don't want to do what makes their network secure. 
Uh, it's not that they don't care. It's probably that they think it's not worthwhile. And so here's the problem I see with all of this. And that's why I defaulted in my analysis to secure private networks that you don't get on unless you've satisfied all the criteria, authentication, governance, and enforcement criteria that I talk about. I think it just doesn't work because we are where we are and people don't want to do what they have to do because it will be inconvenient. It will slow down their user experience. Uh, they don't want to be identified. And that's another thing. I mean, we're talking about the balance between security and privacy all the time, right? It's always a balance between security and privacy. So you ask people, well, I can give you a lot more security. I can give you 80% security, but you're going to lose a little bit of privacy because I'm going to be scanning your retina or I'm going to be taking your fingerprint. I'll be doing this or that along the way. And some people will say, I don't want to do that. And, and that's the weakness in the system. Uh, and I think at the, I think fundamentally, Paul, you can't go to a system where you force people to maximize security so that the only alternative I came up with, by, in some respects, as a matter of logic, is that you have to go to, to secure private networks that only the people who satisfy those requirements can get on. So to another part to your question, you brought, is Estonia is the one example that people always use because they did they were kind of force functioned by the Russians to figure out a way to manage their information flow. And, you know, they're also, they come from a different way of looking things than, than we do. So you look at Estonia, they're almost 100% that they have a digital identity. Netherlands, same thing. They, all these things flow from there. And the government is the entity that actually authenticates them. And they're able to use that authentication in multiple you know user points, not just with the government. So we have looked at, you know, different ways to do that. The real ID is a step forward. There's a lot of pushback from privacy people on that. But we are kind of the you know the ball is rolling downhill now and we need to decide if we are going to figure out a process that works here for us in the United States. In Asia they actually have kind of a they've sourced it out and they have certain companies. You can walk in, we jokingly called it the Iacocca card in Japan, that isn't the name of it, but you know, it, it, you could use it in multiple entities. You could use it at the seven eleven, you could use it at the metro, you could use it in, you know, to actually you know use it as a toll card when you're you know, if you had a rental car. Uh, but all that had to be authenticated back into you know your identity at some point. So there are multiple ways that this is moving forward. I've actually written a couple different blogs and some articles about this. We you, it, the challenge is the cynicism which you I rightfully have and have have expressed during this um, podcast is you do have to give up a lot to gain some of that digital economy capability to have less friction. And so I think this is an area where I look forward, Tom, to seeing. I know you've written several books, uh, and you know what else you write. I really thoroughly enjoyed um, hearing your perspective on this. I am going to ask because I can't remember the name of it. You mentioned at the beginning of uh, Paul's event another book that's going gangbusters right now because of what we're going through with um, the different banking situations that's selling really well. What is what is it? The other book of yours we should be reading? Oh, uh, two hundred years of American financial panics. Uh, I released that. Um through my publisher, 2021. And um, you know, this book, The Unhackable Internet, got released uh, February 2023. So in the middle of promoting The Unhackable Internet in 2023, all of a sudden, 200 years of American financial panics became hot, largely because I talked about the factors that create financial panics. I, I, I My thesis was that the government facilitates or causes 
uh, financial panics over a long period of time simply by the policies and the regulations they articulate. And then all of the executives in the financial services business swim in that water and see the incentives and, and, and that water gets distorted by government policies. But one of the things I did in that book in chapter 14 was predict the next financial crises and where they would come from. And unfortunately, I've been pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty precise with, uh, what's happened with crypto, with what's happened with Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and interest rates. And unfortunately, it's not an area that I enjoy being right in because it just means that we are, we are looking at some pretty difficult financial problems in the future. And frankly, I think so is China now. But, uh, yes, that was 200 years of American financial panics and, uh, people joked that they didn't know I was that old, uh, that I could, <laughs> I only, I only lived through 50 years of that book. Fantastic. Well, thank you both for your time today. I look forward to reading all the things that you do going forward and also looking to see what you've done in the past. I'm sure I'll find very interesting. So thank you for being guests today on Explain to Shane. Shane, thanks very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.